Hello, everyone, and welcome to this uh, podcast and opening of the show exhibition called The Dream. For those who don't know me, I'm Mimi, uh, the founder of Agora Digital Art, and uh, we are on a mission to advocate for women and non-binary artists who are um, working uh, at the intersection of art and technology. And we are based in London. Uh, we are decentralized because we are a little bit everywhere in the world. Uh, we are a certified social enterprise and we are entirely run by volunteers. And um, I will leave now the floor with uh, Ishil, uh, who is uh, the curator and the moderator of the talk. Uh, Ishil is uh, so uh, the curator working on the transformation of human creativity and the connection with technology. She has built this uh, fantastic exhibition and all the panel of the speakers that we have tonight. So I thank you so much, Ishil, for your really hard work. And I would like as well to thank uh, Ozan, our cloud fairy. So I leave you now. Uh, for serious conversations and uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Mimi. Hello, everyone. It's exciting to launch the Dream Virtual Reality Exhibition with you tonight, today. Uh, we have three guest speakers for the opening talk, Dr. Sharon Slevensky, Dr. Marek Wojtasek, and Dr. Duane Ostel. Uh, welcome and thank you all for accepting our invitation. Uh, we will screen today a guest artwork uh, by Vesna Petrisin actually in the end, so please stay tuned. Uh, those who are watching this talk right now, feel free to leave a comment uh, or ask a question. We'll try to do our best to share them with our speakers. Uh, so we'll start with uh, Sharon Slivinsky. She is Professor of Information and Media Studies at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. She is the author of several books, including Dreaming in Dark Times. She is also the founder of the Museum of Dreams, a hub for exploring the social and political significance of dream life. Today, uh, Dr. Slivinsky will talk about dreams and the project of the Museum of Dreams. Please, Dr. Slivinsky. Thank you so much. Um, it's a big pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward actually to seeing the exhibition. I haven't seen any, I haven't had a chance to really um, absorb the exhibition. So that's uh, something I'm looking forward to today. Um, Isil asked me to speak and she sort of gave me a, a green light to speak about whatever I wanted to. Um, and I thought I would just introduce uh, the Museum of Dreams, which is a project that I have going now. Uh, so I'll share a little bit of that with you. Um, Hopefully you can see this is the landing page for the museum. Um, and I started the museum in, in 2017. It was a, um, an extension of a scholarly project that uh, a book, The Dreaming in Dark Times that Isil mentioned, uh, which was published that year in 2017. And the museum started really as a simple archive. I, I wanted a place I could put all these amazing dreams that I had discovered when I was researching the book uh, from the historical archive. They're not easy to find, oddly, dreams in the historical archive, um, but they're kind of everywhere when you start to, to look. But I wanted a place, I thought, well, it, it would be good to have a place where you could look up dreams. Um, that's how it began. It quickly transformed into something that was much different, a collaborative project that involved artists, uh, healthcare professionals, um, students, a whole range of people uh, ended up getting quickly involved. Um, I just wanted to give you a little kind of sketch about what the museum is 
about what we do, the kind of approach we take, and then just give you two examples um, to try to link it to art specifically. Um, it, the Museum of Dreams, like, dreams, of course, are uh, a universal phenomenon practiced and uh, used very differently in different cultures. Our definition of dreams is a kind of uh, gathering of a variety of these traditions. We define dreaming as a vital mode of seeing and listening that happens when our eyes are closed. For us, dreams are a very special kind of associative thought and a source of our deepest non-rational knowledge. Why do we focus on the kind of politics of dreams? Well, partly because this um, associative form of thought is something that uh, has been devalued in recent times. It's associative thought is something, of course, we, we're all familiar with. You can think of Pavlov's poor dogs, <laughs> the way in which uh, Ivan Pavlov managed to show that our dreams will make connections through these forms of association. The dogs were getting fed and he had different sounds that he used, of course, while the dogs were being fed. And so then dogs came to salivate, expecting food when they heard the sound of a bell or the sound of a metronome in that particular case. Dreams work similarly. They're the same kind of associative thought. They're not conditioned in the same way that Pavlov showed that you could make associations. It's a form of thinking that is more driven by desire. You just move associatively based on um, the way in which your own inclination works. The devaluing of dream life happened, it started in the Western world anyway, in the Enlightenment period, when you had a series of philosophers who quite concertedly uh, tried to do away with the non-rational knowledge that was available um, in dream life. And, and of course, the forms of reason that we're familiar with now, like rationality, reason, lo uh, logical thought and whatnot, are, have, have taken stage. I think, and the reason that we have the Museum of Dreams is because that this form of associative knowledge, this non-rational way of knowing is something that we need to kind of bring back. For us, it's an urgent political concern and we link it to the ways in which, for example, Toni Morrison talks about the unspeakable things unspoken, that dreams are a way to access those um, latent or otherwise repressed uh, material, both from our personal lives, but of course, also from our social and political lives. So I thought I would just bring one example that's kind of more of an obvious one. This one comes from uh, Nelson Mandela. So Nelson Mandela had, I probably doesn't need any introduction, I suspect, obviously the first democratically elected president uh, of South Africa uh, held, he just served for one term and partly because he came out of prison for 27 years. Uh, he published an autobiography the same year that he came out of prison and it has, uh, the autobiography covers his entire life and more, but it's astonishing that in that autobiography, he includes one of his recurring nightmares. This is one of the dreams that made me realize that, that, uh, that, they are, that dreams have political content and in fact are an important resource for non-rational knowledge. Um, here's the dream. He says that one, in, I had one recurring nightmare. In the dream, I had just been released from prison, only it was not Robben Island, but a jail in Johannesburg. I walked outside the gates into the city and found no one there to meet me. In fact, there was no one there at all. No people, no cars, no taxis. I would then set out on foot towards Soweto. I walked for many hours before arriving in Orlando West uh, and then turned the corner towards 8115. That's the address of his home in Orlando West. Finally, I would see my home, but it turned out to be an empty, to be empty, a ghost house with all the doors and windows open, but no one there at all. 
to me, this this dream is as much a testimony as the kind of testimony that Mandela gave at the Rabonia trial in which he was sentenced to life in prison. And during that trial, Mandela, for one of the first times, and certainly one of the first times that the world heard him describe the system of apartheid as an injustice, and that he was prepared to set his life against the ideal of a free and democratic South Africa. And this, to me, this dream is doing that same kind of work. It's testifying in a more private way about the political conditions of unfreedom that apartheid was in South Africa. It wasn't just me, of course, that, that they thought of uh, Nelson Mandela's dream as an important testimony. In fact, it is the opening scene of the biopic. And I'll just play that scene for you. I dream the same dream, night after night. I am coming home to the house in Orlando. Everything is the way it was. They're all there. All the ones that I have loved most in the world. They seem fine, getting on with their lives. But they do not see me. They never see me. It's an interesting, the film is an interesting variation of the dream that is that from the uh, autobiography and they reverse a little bit of it where he, rather than him coming home to an empty house, there's a house that's full of his life, but um, they can't see him. But in that same way that like, like film, dreams are a kind of dramatization of our lived experiences. And Mandela's dream is drawing from the lived experiences of his own life. He mentions there the, uh, the time spent in the jail in Johannesburg. Here's a slide of that, of that jail in Johannesburg where he was held before he was sent to Robben Island. The, the dream also mentions, of course, his home in Soweto, the 8115, which has now, of course, become a, a museum. In Orlando West, place for him that was very, very significant, his first home in which he owned. And the dream also manages to, to index the, his time spent on Robben Island, though he says in the dream specifically it wasn't, it wasn't Robben Island, but even that negation is a way to index something just under the terms of, of a cancellation. Why well, I think that dream is important because it actually dramatizes or it visually stages in a way like artists do that sense of alienation and unfreedom that the prolonged incarceration inflicted on Mandela. The nightmare kind of dramatized what a life separated from one, one's loved, loved ones feels like. And it also dramatized that sense of being ostracized from society, which is what happened to Mandela. I mean, when he came out of prison, I don't know if you guys remember, but he, there were no photographs of Nelson Mandela because part of being banned in South Africa meant that no photographs could be circulated of a banned individual. So no one knew what this man looked like after coming out of prison for almost three decades. So the cover of Time magazine had to have an artist illustration because that was part of the kind of way in which um, the violence of apartheid scraped away at people's very subjectivity. You, you were in a world where you were not seen and the dream is doing that work of dramatizing it. 
it's an example of how dreams are a kind of inexhaustible reservoir for the, like a tool for surviving uh, dark times, a way to express what your lived experience is without ever acceding to it, a way to re-articulate the terms of our lived experience. For me, that's the political potential of dreams, that, that transfiguration element. It, it, dreams are like visual art, a representation drawn from lived experience, but they transform the terms of that lived experience. And they're allied in that way to artist works, which are the same kind of uh, experiment and form. And I wanted to give you one last example. It's a quick one to talk about the political potential of that, what Freud would call the dream work in the sense of how the dream transforms lived experience and artists do that work too. I'll give you one last example. It comes from uh, Joel Thompson, who is a composer, an Atlanta-based composer. and uh, He produced a beautiful choral composition in 2005 called Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. In each of the movements comes, he uses the basis of the seven last words of unarmed men, black men who'd been killed mostly by uh, police or figures of state, official state figures in the United States. So he builds the choral composition out of these testimonies that are material from lived experience, but by giving them a new kind of emotional landscape in the context of the choral work, they, they transform that context. I'll, get, I'll just play with you. It's about a four minute clip. It's just the my favorite uh, particular movement, which is uh, the one based on Amadou Diallo's uh, last words, which were uh, based on a cell phone message he left for his mom. He had just gotten into college and his last words were, mom, I'm going to college. And you'll see the, the musical setting and what that work of transfiguration does politically. And then I'll just give you a little snippet of the uh, fourth movement, just to give you a different flavor of how the, the textual um, terms are set to the musical composition.
that work of transfiguration of um, giving something a new form is a is a way to give it a new emotional universe. And so in this case, you have a, a grief, fury, rage that gets transformed into something that uh, is more like grace. That there's something beautiful about the new uh, emotional universe, and that dreams do that same work of giving something a new form, which is allows us to process our lived experience differently. Thank you very much. Since you talked about dreams transforming your lived experience, it makes me think about pandemic because I think the virus didn't only invade our individual physical bodies, but also our uh, collective consciousness, um, causing a rupture in the way we experience the world, in the way we interact with ourselves uh, and with each other. And I think uh, digital art in this uh, post-pandemic world provides us with the ground to, to reconnect with uh, ourselves, with each other through new creative ways. And I think at this point, uh, Dr. Marek has a lot to say about uh, how we experience the digital realm, cyberspace, and the relationship of uh, this experience with the dreams. Uh, so, um, he is an assistant professor in the Faculty of International and Political Studies, affiliated with the Department of American and Media Studies and Women's Studies Center, and is also a co-founder of Border Studies Center at the University of Lodz, Poland. He is the recipient of several grants from global institutions and, um, and the former Fulbright Fellow at eDream Lab at the University of Illinois. He has examined digital ecologies and aesthetics from a new materialist and non-humanist perspective, transversely bringing together such areas as design and space studies, media ecology, Deleuze philosophy, and Gattari's schizoanalysis. Marek's current research explores the relationship between digital art and the sensorium in the airport space. Such an interesting topic. Yes, Pastor Mike, it's, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks again for having me here. Um, and uh, well, as I as I do not have much time up here, I'm going to try to make it brief, nice and sweet uh, and say a few words um, on dreams and, and, and digital culture. So uh, dreams have always been thought of uh, from the vantage point uh, of reality and more particularly a human sense and symbolically established understanding uh, of reality. And further to this, in Western culture, in a negative manner, as its opposition, non-contradiction, dialectically cannibalized other, or the unconscious. Given the computational machine's uh, present capacity to delink uh, dreaming from humans, which, by the way, software art and digital art are prime examples of, thus taking us beyond a world of um, <clears throat> human dreams and enabling us to contemplate dreams uh, apart from bodies, um, it is high time, I think, we reversed the logical order and thought of reality and human reality from the perspective of dreams, but this time no longer and not exclusively human dreams. Digital dreams can thus force us to rethink not only human dreams, but dreaming itself. And now faced with uh, the hyper-postmodern um, semantic cacophony of dream uh, today, before um, I think we can move on to proposing a novel and affirmative uh, sense of dreaming, first, I will need to briefly account for the conceptual uh, complexity of the term. Uh, so Western culture has developed three major discourses on dreams, namely Platonist Christian, 
psychoanalytic and capitalist, which all together express negative judgment of dreams by cursing them respectively. First, ontologically, that is malediction of falsity or deception. Second, epistemologically, that is malediction of automatism. And that comes as a deterministic or naturalistic view. And third, morally, that is malediction of a pragmatic virtue of aspiration or wish fulfillment. Dreams thus become enchained and made subservient to human reality and its sensus communis with its needs, demands, and desires, repressed or otherwise. And so, since nothing is ever born out of non-wishes, uh, the challenge of transvaluation is not to figure out how to revoke the curse and free dreams from the negative images. That would be mere justification and, in fact, a failed uh, kind of critique. But to disavow them and sense or intuit them differently, sensibly reinventing them. This is far removed from um, drawing either a utopian somnambular, dystopian, nightmarish, or pantopian, a dreamlike post-media vision of the digital. These post-human um, prospects, uh, in fact, reveal digital machines' human-like capacities to create, innovate, and invent, and thus still remaining human, all too human, as Nietzsche would um, put it. Uh, and so my affirmative proposition um, tonight uh, is, of course, largely inspired by Gilles Deleuze, is much more modest and naive um, and consists in an imminent reconfiguration of dreaming in terms of journal insomnia, namely a dreamless sleep in which we do not fall asleep, becoming insomniac, immersing ourselves in reality's own dream and forgetting about dream as we've known it, and thus escaping judgment, negative judgment. <laughs> in consequence, dreaming does not end up opposed to insomnia, the latter becoming its imminent driving force. In dreaming, the dream realizes what it dreams about. And so by simulating and simultaneously stimulating dreams, digital art gives culture an incentive to reinvent itself as an insomniac dreaming machine. That makes of dreaming, as Deleuze proposes, a quote, a guardian of insomnia that keeps it from falling asleep, end quote. Now, it is critical not to conflate here journal insomnia with reverie or daydream. The element of volitional freedom uh, separates journal insomnia from reverie. Reverie, like sleeping dream, is an essentially oniric activity. Insomniac dreaming then retains choice, um, and I think this is where the political um, resides, in its commitment to resist the soporific or intoxicating allurements of established values and habits that dull consciousness, and it is characterized by vigilance a watchful condition um, that replaces traditional epistemic criticism. I dream, and in dreaming, I affirm more than I know. Dreaming is not so much the condition of possible knowledge, but the location where I can virtualize knowledge. Dreaming is not about making the impossible possible, but exactly the converse that is making the possible virtual, uh, triggering its becoming actual. 
dreams no longer contradict or deceive reality. Neither do they convey any meaning. Insomniac dream imminently expresses an involuntary dream of and into reality. Reality is becoming dream. That is its imminent simulation, a dream within a dream, a vertiginous state of intoxication that our waking life, I believe, must learn how to fold so that we can sustainably endure the world's dream of eternity by mindfully reducing and organizing its unlivable speed. I therefore uh, view digital artistic uh, production not in terms of its textuality, ideological value, or even its historicity, but rather its peculiar vitality. I am curious to explore what potential extra textual uses the artworks can have, uh, specifically what novel figurations of dream they digitally draw and inspire. Uh, in my encounter with these uh, artworks here, I see digital artists as journal insomniacs. I'll be curious to learn more from the artists themselves, <laughs> how they feel <laughs> about such a designation, who expose the limits um, of modern skepticism by means of their dream works, um, tracing out uh, the real on their dream line of flight thus expressing imminent entanglement in this world, a profound belief in it, um, where nothing resembles anything else, which best renders, as we know, digital arts resistance to identification. So allow me to conclude with, I mean, rapidly, with two kind of symptomatological um, observations, of course, regarding these, um, this collection of, of artworks or dream works, in fact. Uh, taking into account the nature of the code and capabilities of digital apparatuses, in many ways, digital art um, aesthetically helps us come to terms with the fact that life as such is a process of breaking down. And I think, I mean, we couldn't be experiencing this particular um, sort of process um, more than today. In this sense, the artworks both up capture um, the current zeitgeist in the Anthropocene, as Bernard Stiegler designates uh, in terms of ubiquitous entropy, disturbance, disruption, disappearance, and ultimately collapse. But also in their creative process, uh, they express this imminent and inevitable catastrophic that is downturning dimension. And secondly, it also seems to me that what brings together, um, I've tried to make some you know, tentative sense of what I'm looking at and experiencing. So it seems to me that what, what brings together um, somehow this diversity of artworks or dream works, in fact, assembled in this exhibition is a unique aesthetic ethological paysage um, of multifarious bodies, um, different bodies, atmospheric, cybernetic, humanoid, uh, algorithmic, hybrid, um, as well as sonic, insomniac, a spectral, glass, animal, textile, and I could go on and on, um, material bodies in dynamic relations and transitions, which maps uh, their velocities and intensive becomings uh, and sends viewers uh, on a journey into alternative sensibilities. Well, at least that was my case. <laughs> and I'll pause here, uh, looking forward to listening more uh, from artists themselves. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Marek, for offering such a provoking and inspiring perspective on our digital experience and on the DREAM exhibition. Uh, I think think of anything in terms of its potential, especially thinking of the virtual space in terms of potential is already somehow politically charged act. And uh, I think you'll talk mm -hmm. about this uh, further, but uh, speaking of uh, politics and its analysis of dreams and cyberspace. Here now is Dr. Duane Roussel. Duane is a Lacanian psychoanalyst, professor of sociology and an assistant professor at Indian Institute of Technology, Guwahati. He works in several academic fields, including cultural sociology, gender and sexuality studies, anarchy studies, and aesthetics. His work attempts to introduce an alternative scholarly discourses that aim to produce consistent and coherent bodies of knowledge. He founded and edits the journal Anarchist Developments in Cultural Studies. Duane actually is a former colleague of mine and his inspiration behind the use of the Mobius loop in the digital venue, VR venue, as the motive of the dream exhibition in order to emphasize the continuity of the dream life and the waking life. Uh, yes, Duane, what will you tell us about dreams? Thank you, Isha. Um, thank all of you for uh, for the wonderful uh, presentations and for the work that you're doing, and for welcoming me into this uh, virtual reality sort of exhibition on dreams. Um, if it's okay with you, I think I'd like to start with a bit of an anecdote. Um, I first came to India several years ago, which is where I met Dr. Isha. Who um, graciously offered me assistance um, as I struggled to acclimate to my environment. And the years have passed. I don't know how many years it's been actually. And we're both, for independent reasons, back in India. I wouldn't say that I've succeeded in acclimating to my environment, but something of our initial encounter is repeating. And I maintain that repetition should not be confused with redundancy. Yes, something repeats, something of the encounter is repeating, but in some restrictive sense, it's repeating beyond my initial helplessness, the helplessness that characterized our initial encounter. This time we're putting ourselves to work. So what can I say, what can I dream up to say today? I don't think I'm positioned to speak about art. I don't think I'm positioned to speak about virtual reality or even what my friend Slavoj Žižek refers to as the reality of the virtual. I think I've taken up a different position one which leads me to speak today using whatever uh, words I can fashion together into something about the nightmare of continuing to dream. I don't know why this phrase forced itself upon me, the nightmare of continuing to dream. It came at me quite suddenly yesterday. And it imposed itself on me insistently. And it became necessary to speak to all of you 
about the perpetuation of the dream work, its infinite horizon. Uh, that's my nightmare. The nightmare for me is the possibility that we'll go on dreaming, we'll continue to dream indefinitely. And it's why I think it necessitates that I occupy a different position. Maybe some of you know, and I wouldn't fault you for already knowing this, it's to be expected that you already know today, um, that Jacques-Alain Miller, he made a really clever interjection in the Freudian metaverse. He said, the dream interprets itself. The dream interprets itself. The dream is its own interpretation. I think this interjection implies that any further interpretation of a dream, even one that comes from, or one that you might expect from a guest speaker known as your psychoanalyst, it becomes redundant. Um, why interpret an interpretation? unless you insist upon the fact that psychoanalysis is a meta-language, which it isn't. It means that the dream is our metaverse and it functions metalogically. It's up to the psychoanalyst to insist upon this point as Lacan did. There's no such thing as a meta-language. So what does it mean to be positioned in the metaverse? It means exactly that one is moved beyond the obstacles, beyond the impasses, onto another frontier, another scene. We dream outside of ourselves today, which is precisely the place from which we witness our unconscious. And Freud, of course, named this frontier another scene, a synonym of verso, which is the inverse, the metaverse. It's why the metaverse is always a torus, a loop closing in upon itself with a fake twist, false twist. <laughs> What's meta is already beyond the impasse. So what function does it serve us to render that redundant by adding the word verse, which means to go to another scene? Um, redundancy, I think, is to be expected in the metaverse. It's the scene of incarnations where any person, Freud reminded us this, that any person in the dream, in the dream work, if they are, I think Freud said the same gender or something like that, it's an incarnation of ourselves displaced. It's a scene of incarnations, as is known in this uh, fractal universe uh, of Hindu mythology, where there are many gods and many avatars. So what about the technique of psychoanalytic interpretation of dreams? Uh, for some, there's this idea that there's a latent meaning obscured by the manifest content of our speech, some latent horizon of meaning, uh, which 
was thought to be targeted through psychoanalytic interpretation. This approach clearly makes psychoanalytic interpretation redundant. In fact, I think it was a problem already outlined in some sense in his own way by Freud in a footnote in his famous The Interpretation of Dreams, which I have in front of me. If you don't mind, I'll quote it at length. I found it, quote, I found it extraordinarily difficult to accustom my readers to the distinction between the manifest dream content and the latent dream thoughts. Over and over again, the necessity of interpreting the dream was ignored. But now, when analysts have at least become reconciled to substituting the manifest dream for its latent meaning, as found by interpretation, many of them are guilty of another mistake to which they adhere just as stubbornly. They look for the essence of the dream in this latent content and thereby overlook the distinction between the latent dream thoughts and the dream work. The dream is fundamentally nothing more than a special form of our thinking, which is made possible by the conditions of the sleeping state. It is the dream work which produces this form and it alone is the essence of dreaming, the only explanation of its singularity." End quote. I highlight this word singularity used by Freud. For him, there's something deeper to the dream which is capable of revealing the special form of our thinking, special type of work, maybe a mode of work or a knotting or something. But this word singularity was used later by Jacques Lacan in the 1970s, I think. And then even after that, it achieved the dignity, I think, of a concept in the teaching of Jacques-Alain Miller. Uh, psychoanalytic interpretation aims at the singularity of the structure incentivizing the dream work. A structure authorizes the weaving and the working forth of dream interpretations. So how is it, I'm thinking, how is it that for so long we've missed this point, some of us, the dream's satisfactions are related to its interpretations. You know, the dreamer wants to go on dreaming, which means to continue the uh, dream censorship which involves minimally, as we know, the work of condensation, displacement, secondary revision, and so on. The exhibitionism of the dream is the show must go on. And for Lacan, the show goes on, even after we believe we wake up. Why? Because, and I think I'm quoting quite directly Lacan, the unconscious is precisely the hypothesis that we do not dream only when we're asleep. So uh, Lacan hoisted himself upon a stage to reveal to us that the dream work was, as we all know, homologous to the work of poetry. The poet, poetry fabricates itself. He said, I'm not a poet, but a poem, and these sorts of things. Condensation, displacement, homologous to uh, metaphor, metonymy, and so on. That's the poem. And we love our poem like we love our child. 
uh, it's popular to repeat, uh, and I don't mind doing it so long as I don't make myself redundant. Uh, an example discussed by Freud, a dream known as the father can't you see that I'm burning tree. It's really popular to read. I'll give you the, the elements. You all likely already know it. A father is asleep in a room with the door slightly ajar and there's flickering lights of candles leaking inside of the room. The candles placed uh, upon a coffin situated in the adjacent room and inside of the coffin rests the body of the man's recently deceased son. Uh, the candle falls upon the body. This is really happening, we're told. The boy catches fire, something like this. And the man perceiving the flames, likely smelling the smoke, goes on sleeping, internalizing those perceptions into the dream of his son standing in front of him, whispering, Father, can't you see that I'm burning? So during sleep, the perceptual consciousness system is dulled. Perceptions easily become integrated into dream satisfactions. But why? I claim it's because the dream persists. It persevers, which is a word I thought I was clever for inventing. I thought it was my own invention. <laughs> um, I have the word perseverance tattooed in my arm. And once when I was speaking to an analyst or some students, I accidentally said it like that, pow severance, to pow sever. Um, but I, I guess Jacques Lacan used this in his talk, La Troisième, the third. Uh, I didn't know, it, or I, I suppose I would say, uh, I didn't know that I already knew it, but I repeat it anyway. So we can say the perseverance of the dream. Maybe you can hear what I'm saying. I'm, a, I'm an English speaker, but I'm also French Canadian. And I find myself blending the two languages together because it's my language. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it makes no difference for me. Perseverance is another way to say the severance of the father function, of the paternal function, not the paternal function severance, but the severance of that function. And what fascinates me about the father, don't you see that I'm burning dream, is that there is no pal. The father's asleep. Um, the child becomes reduced in his function of the dream work to appear. So from power to peer. So we can say it's a reduction of power, of father to, to friend, to comrade, comrade of the dream work. So for Freud, the dream persists. It wants to keep dreaming, which means it perseveres, making of the dream censor something similar to that of contemporary Hollywood censorship. You know how it works. In the 1930s, um, there was what was called the Hayes Code in film, which was basically a prohibition against representations of explicit uh, sexuality on, on screen, something like that. It, paternal prohibitions of sexuality on scene. They could not be seen, they were tucked into another scene. Today, something different happens at the Oscars. The universal paternal prohibition against sexuality condones another scene, 
There are particular affirmations or selective incorporations of sexuality, exemplified through the quota system um, and so on. Par particular representations of sexuality must be seen on screen. Um, or else you can be disqualified for being nominated, which is interesting because nomination becomes reduced in its function to scenes of sexuality. Uh, it's also the problem of our metaverse. It imposes, I think, upon us a new nightmare, which is the perseverance of the dream. Freud's theory, um, I don't know how much time I have left, just a few more minutes. But don't worry, it'll all end. Freud's theory of dream censorship is exactly the hypothesis that you're permitted satisfaction in particular ways, since censorship is not a function of paternal prohibition. There's no father in the unconscious in this sense. We should ask ourselves, how is it, for example, that dream work can be at the same time a function of wish fulfillment, which means we can get in our dreams what we couldn't get in reality, while also being a place of censorship. It's clear that contradictions like this don't matter in the unconscious. There's no negations in the unconscious, we're told. There's no paternal prohibitions. Second, the contradiction is permitted because censorship is itself a satisfaction. It's the satisfaction of disguising sexual impulses. And Freud states it clearly, I think, in a section the somatic sources of dreams and the interpretation of dreams, where he writes that what censorship in the dream does is it allows the dreamer to continue dreaming. It's what tranquilizes the ego. But what Freud says censorship cannot accept is what he calls, I'm quoting Freud, a correct interpretation. Correct interpretation. I'll quote Freud, actually, I have it in front of me. The wish to sleep to which the conscious ego has adjusted itself is made possible through dream censorship. The correct interpretation of which the sleeping mind is perfectly capable would require the sleeper to wake up. Uh, hence, of those interpretations which are possible at all, only such are admitted as are acceptable to the censorship of the sleep wish." So a correct interpretation is one that wakes us up. That was Freud's wager. So I just add one more quotation from Freud. It's a torture to translate it into English. So uh, I'm just gonna use my own words. Um, if the exhibition is to make an advancement according to our understanding of the unconscious, then against the demands of censorship, it has to come to an end." end quote. So I would say an end to the infinite horizon of dreaming is precisely what could make it all bearable. And maybe it also concerns psychoanalysts who are the ones who say there is no such thing as a meta-language. I'll end it with this, I think. In the 24th seminar from Lacan, he said, this is my own translation, we never speak about any language unless it is in another language. I said that there is no such thing as a meta-language because language itself doesn't exist. 
there are only varied crops of language, end quote. So language becomes reduced to a prop, which means that it's like a script that you can have on hand. And if it's on hand, it's not so very far from a sign language, an art form. There's no meta language because language is saturated in satisfactions. It's why I think we witness today the traumatic impact of language upon our dreams. And in the end, I think I'm left to wonder if dreaming is a resistance to language. That is a very nice point. And I think we are going to talk about this soon in the metaverse, if it's okay for you. So um, thank you very much, Duane. And so we talked about the political significance of dreams and the oneric digital realm. Thank you all very much. Now we'll have an open discussion in the exhibition venue uh, with the exhibiting artists. We're going to say goodbye to you right now with a guest artwork by Vesna Petrosin. It's called The Dreams Our Things Are Made On. The title is a twist to Shakespeare's famous line by um, Prospero from Tempest. Uh, the things our dreams are made on, which deals with the substance of human dream, desire, and reality. Vesna says, my twist reflects my position that our outer world reality is a result of our inner world dreams, visualizations. Artists, designers, composers, research scientists, cooks know this very well. You have to have a full vision or a virtual image or a visualization of the thing, song, cake, interior, dress, building, you are trying to materialize. Visualizing and planning is everything. Uh, thank you, Vesna, for these exciting words and for the dreamy artwork. We now screen the dream our things are made on. So enjoy the show and see you person on the other side. Thank you very much. Desire is the fuel of our lives, the first to be different from who we think we are and things we think we have. Invention propelled by desire, control and fear brought the myth of technology, the quasi-religion of endless improvement that speaks through the prism of rituals of industry, its methods of production, and mechanics of mass satisfaction. Disappointment only fuels the dream. While Buckminster Fuller advocated the power of technology to promote social change, Current condition observes the modernist ideal of limitless progress in decay and reflects the power of technology-generated control, terror and submission. 
the rise of fear and the return to fortress building, barrier erecting, and militant polarizing has marked a departure from principles of openness, transparency, and clarity. Information age has brought back an architecture of suspicion. By creating a new interface between the self, the other, and the world beyond, information technology takes part in constructing and controlling our reality. But what if reality is an artifice? Time-based media such as moving image are by definition illusory, non-existent. The projections of our perceptive apparatus, the architecture of our minds. They are instrumental in activating the viewer into questioning the world as we see it. Ambiguous structures, the shifting multiple views a configuration in a single representation best demonstrate a reality in a state of flux. Here, what we perceive oscillates between two equally valid interpretations. None of them exists as a real object. No order or interpretation is privileged, and there is no ultimate overview only the complexity of multiple reference points and connections. In Lacanian terminology, it is by securing off the real that the reality of individuals remains a coherent illusion and also prevents them from falling prey to the real. However, the very lack of the reference point and closure represents a denial that protects the individual from confronting the trauma of human finitude. Because there is no ultimate irreversible point, the multiple universe always offers alternative realities. It allows for an endlessly repeated reenactment of an impossible real to overcome the trauma. Multiple perspectives encircle an impossible real. Culture of flow, on the other hand, relies on screens, networks, 
immanence, numbers, and the space-time continuum. The global technostructure eradicates all forms of differentiation, aiming at establishing a world where reference to the natural must disappear. The ideology of technological progress brings a promise of freedom, prosperity, and release from body, birth, death, and desire. The mechanistic cosmology of ancient Greece, with Heron's automata and architecture of war machines, prepared the philosophical ground for Descartes and the belief that engineering excellence can manifest a better future. The Bible's call to conquer nature, the Protestant work ethic, and the apocalyptic vision of a new Jerusalem similarly propelled the myth of an engineered utopia. Calvinism, American Christian workaholicism, along with techno-utopianism and perfectionism all share a belief in a world with limitless potential for improvement. Modernity is partly defined by the conceptual barrier erected between nature and culture. Latour sees the beginning of the split between nature and culture in the Enlightenment, when Descartes' mechanicistic thought invaded natural philosophy. Nature is considered as an objective world out there, whose hidden mechanisms are unlocked by detached scientific gentlemen using technical instruments to amplify their perceptions. Thus, technology becomes a tool, a passive extension of the human being that reinforces our creative powers by amputating our natural ones. The myth of the machine insists on the authority of technical and scientific elites and the intrinsic value of efficiency, material progress, control, and unrestrained technological development of economic and territorial expansion. In the industrial age, when the electrical current was transformed into a communication medium, the grandeur that romanticism attached to nature shifted to technology as energy mutated into information. In the information economy that transcends rather than extends its material predecessors, the agricultural and industrial economies, matter has been overthrown by mind. Technology and ideology thrive on dreams of mobility, power, this is in part an enactment of the denial of death, an open-ended system, a chance to start over, replay, and try a different resolution. Zirik situates the technological utopia of virtual space between perversion and trauma fueled by the desire to reach perfection. The virtual ultimately generates a proto-psychotic immersion into an imaginary universe 
unconstrained by symbolic law or real. Fantastic, futurist, utopian, virtual space, or a space of mechanistic dreams is a space without closure and reality of human finitude, constrained only by its self-imposed rules. The reality of utopia is a phantasmatic, passionate attachment, a traumatic scene that never really took place. Real is the traumatic essence of the same, against whose threat we escape through the virtual, fantastic and symbolic universes. Resisting symbolization and dialectical mediation can bring a release from the myth of the power of technology. The belief in technology is a way to play on the present god, to possess multiple identities, and to escape the trauma of our own mortality. But it is merely a false liberation strains of the social space in which our existence is caught. bodies are made of the same particles as the known universe. We are the music that shapes the world.